more happy, the hymn says, but not more secure, are the glorified spirits in heaven. It is a precious doctrine that although those that have gone on to be with our Lord are much more deliriously happy than we are because they see him in a way and in an intimacy with which we have not yet seen him, they are in their certitude of salvation no more secure than we who are still on this side of the veil. And it is a part of that concern that we want to address ourselves to today as we continue in our study in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And to do that, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 14 and read with me two verses. John 14, verses 16 and 17. Though, as we have said, this section of John from chapters, chapter 14 through chapter 16 is not an exhaustive treatment of the ministry and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, it is amazing how thoroughly our Lord dealt with the issue in these introductory comments to his apostles and others as he was about to depart from them, and though saying to them that there were many things he would like to tell them they could not receive yet, they would know them later when the Spirit of Truth came, it's astounding how much he did yet told to them in this very short section of Scripture. The implications and the hints of later to be thoroughly expounded truths jump off the page at us in this section. Verses 16 and 17 of John chapter 14. Please follow as I read. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, for it beholds him not, neither knows him. You know him, for he abides with you and shall be in you. Again, let's draw together to our God and let's pray. Our Father, we make no pretense in trusting the arm or the wisdom of flesh, nor do we desire, we believe, to be glorified ourselves or to draw attention away from you and your glory and the truth as it is in Jesus. And so we, with sinful hearts, knowing that even as we pray such things, there lurk within us all manner of vile corruption. We call upon you, our God, who spared not your own Son, but delivered him up for us all, that with him you would freely now give us the grace and the gift of the unction of your Holy Spirit, in the declaration and the explanation 
of your everlasting and holy word. Lord, give help to the preacher. Give anointing and boldness and clarity to him. And sprinkle upon these words the very dew of heaven. And give help to the hearer that each of us may be careful how we hear and may understand things that will bless our souls and save our souls and make us more proficient in the glorying in our Savior and the glorification of you, our Father. Hear our plea, O Lord, and give grace from heaven now simply because your Son has died and risen and you've promised to give good things to those your children who ask. We ask on no other ground than the righteousness and the blood of our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It is interesting that the Lord Jesus left us no trinkets of his earthly life and ministry. He left no parts or splinters of the cross, no pieces of his garments, no latchet from his sandals, no relics of any kind did he leave his disciples, nor did he ever bless, countenance, or sanctify any such superstitions as attached significance to or adoration of such trifles. But when our Savior's heart was overflowing with love and care for his own, when he took note of their state and condition in this troubled world, and when he surveyed the duty, the work, and the temptations that were to accompany them after his departure, he did bequeath to them and promised to give to them that which they needed for all the contingencies of their earthly pilgrimage. The memorial he left us was not a part of his flesh or clothing, but a simple supper of disposable elements. The provision, however, for all our spiritual needs was made in the giving of his own Holy Spirit to all them that believe upon him. May I say that that may mark a critical and distinctive contrast between what we stand for and the Church of Rome. The difference is no, simple, no simpler put than the difference between the possession and the emphasis of the work and the life and the ministry and the presence of the Holy Spirit of God on the one hand in truth and on the other hand, the worship and the frolicking over relics and trinkets and memorials of carnal living. We have been studying in this place the vast and wonderful subject of the gift of the Spirit as a part of our extended series on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We have seen and rejoiced in the manifold benefits that are ours by virtue of the Spirit living in us. All things pertaining to life and godliness belong to those who are in Christ. And since the supply is so broad, so deep, so high and wide, the Scriptures employ various images 
to explain that supply to us. The image, therefore, that we today are to consider is that of the sealing of the Spirit. You have been with us through this study. You know that we have already dealt with at least nine of the benefits or what some call the fruits or the blessings of the indwelling of God the Spirit in his people. Today we come to consider the subject of the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Our Lord said that he shall be with you and in you forever. And that is under that undergirds and embraces the doctrine of the gift. Not the gift, but the gift of the Holy Spirit. God has given his Spirit to everyone that believes upon his Son, and in them God the Spirit is pleased to dwell until the day of redemption. But there are aspects of that indwelling and that gift that must be treated separately as we look at them so that we may thoroughly understand all that is involved in the indwelling of the Spirit of God in the soul of the believer. To do that today, let's look at Ephesians chapter 1 and two other passages to introduce us to this doctrine of the sealing, S-E-A-L-I-N-G, of the Spirit. Ephesians 1 Verse 13. Now I believe that it needs to be read in its context, and though it takes a bit of time, I want us to read beginning with verse 3 and reading through verse 14. This outburst of doxology from the heart of the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit of God one of the most blessed passages of all the scripture to the heart of the saint. It is a delight to read these words, beginning in Ephesians 1, verse 3. Follow as I read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blemish before him, in love, having foreordained us unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved, that's a capital B, in whom we have our redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to, to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, making known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him, unto a dispensation of the fullness of the time to sum up all things in Christ, the things in the heavens and the things upon the earth. In him, I say, in whom also we were made a heritage, 
having been foreordained according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we should be unto the praise of his glory, we who had before hoped in Christ, in whom you also, having heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, having also believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is an earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession unto the praise of his glory. Now, I don't know if you noticed or not, but that was one sentence in the English language. One of the most glorious conceivable passages in all of literature, and especially if we speak of the Bible. God has left us in these words a vast ocean of blessed truth, one of which, or one part of which, we seek to explore this morning, seen in verse 13, after you have believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. But again, there are two other passages in the New Testament that regard this particular work of sealing, and I want us to read it before we go on. First of all, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Because in all of these together, there is, I believe, a full comprehension of this doctrine. Ephesians 4, verse 30. Now, this appeal and this exhortation to the saints in Ephesus and to us not to grieve the Spirit is grounded upon a precious reality. And the precious reality upon which this exhortation and warning is, is founded is none other than the subject which we undertake to explore today. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. And then he reminds us of the significant relationship that exists between us and that Holy Spirit of God, which we must not grieve. And it is this, in whom, or by whom, you were sealed unto the day of redemption. He's saying that because God's own Spirit has sealed you, or has, been, has become the seal of God upon and within you, you must not grieve him. It is the seal of the Spirit or the giving of the Spirit unto you which ought to motivate you to dread more than anything else in this world the grieving of him whom God freely has given to you. But then finally again, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Now again, the concept of promise is here. 
the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of promise, and again in this passage in 2 Corinthians 1, the idea of promise is linked to the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what Peter said in Acts 2, as you remember in our expositions, that the promise of God has been given when the Spirit has been given. And in Galatians, when he speaks of the promise of Abraham, come upon the Gentiles, that they may receive the blessing of the Spirit, or the promise of the Spirit. Spirit. <coughs> and here in 2 Corinthians, we see the same idea. Look at verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Sylvanus and Timothy, was not yea and nay, but in him is yea. For how many soever be the promises of God, in him, Christ, is the yea. Wherefore also through him is the amen unto the glory of God through us. So he's speaking again of all the promises that God has made in history to his people. They have been, been summed up and fulfilled and have the final exclamation mark of amen in the person and the work of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 21 goes on to say, Now he that establishes us with you in Christ and anoints us is God. And what is the context in which God has anointed us? Or what do we mean by that? He says in verse 22, Who also sealed us and gave us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Sealed us and gave us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Let us examine then the subject of the seal or the sealing of the Spirit. Now before we do, there's one word of qualification or warning or perhaps theological and historical relief or contrast which I wish to lay before you. This concept of the sealing of the Spirit has been seen by good men in history in a way that I do not believe the Scriptures intended. And by the way, I'm not the only one. I'm not trying to create a new thought here. But there have been some and some good men who have seen this doctrine of the sealing of the Spirit in almost an exclusively subjective sense. In the sense that that this sealing is, a, is primarily directed at our own consciousness and awareness of what we possess. And that to the degree that you are sealed, to that degree you have assurance and joy and a fullness of God's Spirit. And they relatively connect the seal with assurance and the development of graces and the joys and the boldness that ought to be characteristic of the believer. And they would therefore assume that there are some who have the seal and some who do not and some who have more or less of it. And they've basically relegated this topic to almost exclusively subjective mindset. 
And because there were some good men who have seen it that way, and among them were some of the Puritans, it has created uh, some difficulty for me in studying it because as I looked at the text, I didn't see that. And I assumed, however, if they saw it, there must be some reason for me to dig further, and I've dug further and further. And I've made some phone calls to some others who older and more experienced than I have dug further and further. And I've concluded that there have been some imprecise comments made. Now, I think the thing that happened among the Puritans was mostly an imprecision in this subject because in their day, there was not as much of a problem relating to this particular theological point as we have in our day. They were not confronted as much with this particular aspect of error that we're confronted with, and so they weren't sensitive to the need to be as precise in their counterbalancing of the error with the truth. And so sometimes what they mean by words like baptism baptisms of love or the spirit they use those terms imprecisely not meaning what many in our generation mean by those terms and they did the same with the subject of the feeling now unfortunately in our own generation and just before our generation a well-known reformed preacher in the british isles who is greatly respected and has been of much help to brethren throughout the world in his preaching and in the books that he's left uh, got into this subject of the sealing of the Spirit and developed a whole doctrine regarding the sealing of the Spirit that, uh, that assumed that it was a matter of progressive degrees of assurance and then finally focused upon this subject and stated in writing and left it with the brethren in the churches that the, the work of the sealing of the Spirit is tantamount to a second definitive work of grace in which after people are saved sometime later, some of them, though not all of them, experience what he calls the sealing, meaning God seals them to a, a final a plateau of assurance. They enter into a new life of victory and confidence and boldness in their faith. And he that designed and designated that experience as the biblical doctrine of the sealing of the Spirit. He helped me in his own writings in coming to the doctrines of grace. I greatly respect it. However, I humbly believe that he went awry on this subject. His followers have taken it much further even than he did, and now out of the British Isles we're being told that there are, there are groups of men and women who call themselves the Reformed Sealers, or those who are not only Reformed, but they've gone further and have been sealed and have the extra. Uh, in subjective psychology, it's no, not much different, is it, than the second blessing of the baptism of the Spirit or what some have called in the deeper life or the victorious life or the triumphant life or the exchanged life movements of something that Christians need more than what they got when they got Christ in the beginning. Some experience of God, some work of God subsequent to salvation that without which you'll not be as effective as good a Christian but with which you will enter a level of Christian life that'll basically free you from the old doubts and much of the struggle and much of the wars that have been your lot 
Now you can see, again, as we've said in the past, how tempting such a proposition would be. If you're laboring against your sins, and every true believer is, if you're grieving over your weakness and over the revelations of your iniquities, and if you're struggling against the powers of darkness and often wonder if you can make it another day and sometimes are tempted even to question the gospel and its power because you see sin overcoming you at times and you slip into grievous error. Some of you uh, have had much struggle over this and you would welcome a miracle spiritual drug that would once and for all settle the issue, get you up on that plane of blissful Christian living which you've imagined some others are living upon because when in their public ministries you don't see the flaws and the weaknesses and the struggles. You'd like to be there. You know you're not. Maybe there is a need for God to do an extra thing in me and maybe that's what I'm looking for in my Bible. Well, this has happened to many and when a, a well-known reformed man comes out with that kind of theory, it is glanced upon by many who are weary of the struggle of the battle. But brethren, let me say again, that is not my position. What is, then, our position or my position and the position of many brethren on this subject? And I believe that I can make it clear biblically to you. I've not said this to confuse you. I've said it to make you know there is a, a confident movement to the contrary of what you're going to hear. So that when you hear it, you won't be confused and you'll be able to use what you've heard today and in subsequent times to defend yourself against the false application of a blessed truth. The way we want to do it is divide the study up into four parts. The first is a simple statement of the identity of the seal. We want to identify what the seal is. Second, the essence of the seal. What is the essence or the character or the nature of the seal? To define the seal. In the third place, the recipients of the seal. And this is critical to a proper understanding of the doctrine. Who is sealed? Who are not sealed? And in the fourth place, the Lord willing to draw some applications from this consideration. First of all, then, note with me the identity of the seal. If you look back in Ephesians chapter 1, our first text, you'll note clearly and carefully the wording of the Holy Spirit in this chapter. This is not a mere symbolic theme, nor is it some sort of carnal stamp. The identity of the seal is nothing less than the Holy Spirit himself. It says to us, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It is not so much that the Spirit took a seal and put it on you, as it is that God put the Spirit upon you, or within you. You see, the Spirit is the seal. Not just is the one who seals, but is the seal itself. Now, I doubt that we would need to talk too much about that to make you understand immediately that there's something very holy 
and very awesome and very precious about such a statement. We're talking about the fact that God has sealed his children with nothing less than himself. His person. The third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit. Get that straight? The language is clear. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Not by. It is not the Spirit who did the work of sealing itself. It is the Spirit who was sent from the Father, sent from the Son, to be God's seal upon you. You see, at the outset, in identifying the seal, we see that this thing is bound up within the subject of the gift of the Spirit. It is an aspect of the gift of the Spirit, of the indwelling of the Spirit. This is part of what it means to be indwelt with the Spirit. So what we're saying is, the seal is not a separate event from the gift. It's not different from the indwelling. We've established what the gift of the Spirit is in the beginning of our series. We've established what it means to be indwelt by the Spirit. The seal is not something that's different from that. The seal is an aspect of that, is a way of viewing that in one of its benefits and blessings and aspects as a part of the gift and the indwelling. It's another way of describing God putting his spirit into those who believe on his Son. Now, do you see that? You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, as we progress, I think you'll see this more clearly. In the second place, having briefly noted clearly the doctrine of the Bible that the seal is the Spirit himself, note the second thing, the essence of the seal. Now, what I'd like to say again this is, as the term baptism of the Spirit in the New Testament is used, a word picture describing an aspect of the benefits of the Spirit indwelling. The concept of a seal is a word picture, just as baptism is a word picture. He's poured out upon you. You're immersed in him. He comes upon you. Those are word pictures to help us understand more intricate aspects of the plethora of blessings that are ours in his coming. It's not enough just to say, I have the Spirit. There are lots of things that mean. There are lots of manifold blessings that come with that reality. And that's how the Bible works it out, and that's why we break them down and study them. You have not comprehended what you have in Christ. So you've exhausted the study of the subject. The scriptures are full of greater things to know than just the fact that you have the Spirit. And this word picture of the seal is another way of God to point to another principle, another reality, another blessing, all bound up in the one event of giving his Spirit to those that believe on his Son. But I've divided the essence of the Spirit into three parts. In order more accurately to define it, follow, as I state, three aspects or three parts of the essence of the Spirit's sealing. First of all, the seal of the Spirit in its essence is a permanent stamp of God's ownership of us. 
It is a permanent stamp of God's ownership of us. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. We could look into secular history at the use of this term seal, and we would quickly find the use of this concept to denote ownership. Whose is it? Well, whose seal is on it? Whose inscription is on it? Whose name is stamped on it? That idea is clear in history. You recognize something belongs to somebody when you look at the seal, the identifying mark. Well, it's something like that in this thing. It recognizes that the person who bears the seal of God's Spirit upon him has upon him the permanent stamp of God's ownership of him. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. There have been some who have urged concerning the faith, saying that the resurrection is past already and are overthrowing the faith of some. And in verse 19 we read, How be it? In other words, it doesn't matter that some would throw, overthrow people's confidence and faith by mixing up the doctrine of the resurrection. The firm foundation of God stands, stands, stands. The firm foundation of God is resolutely implanted and stands. Having this seal the Lord knows them that are here there's a there's a, a use here of the terminology of seal to denote God's knowledge that you are his God looks upon his and sees upon them the clear mark of his ownership of them he stamps it on them by the person of his spirit the seal of the Spirit is from God's vantage point evidence that we are His. Now it also is evidence to others that we're His. Though the seal itself cannot be seen, the result of the seal may be seen. And God has put His Spirit upon His people as a permanent stamp that we don't belong to ourselves, we belong to him. One of the questions we ask those who are candidates for baptism is, do you understand that from now on you don't belong to yourself? You're not your own. You never again have the right to live your own life the way you see fit in any area. You have been bought, you are owned, you are possessed under the property of Jesus Christ. You remember the scripture that says you have been bought with a price. You are not your own. Therefore, glorify God with your body. So we don't belong to ourselves by virtue of the work of conversion. We don't have any longer the independent right to do anything without the order and the permission and the direction of our Savior and our Lord who owns us. As we've tried to draw an analogy in a lesser way, in the modern context in Sports. Here's a fellow that's an all-star center fielder for a leading American League baseball team. And he's having a great year. And he's doing well. And he's got, he likes where he's lived. He's got him a neat condominium in downtown. And he's got a vacation place on the Cape. And he's got his two Roses and a couple of Mercedes and then a few that he actually uses when he goes places. And he's got his limousines and he's got his, his uh, rocket car and he, he's got his uh, disco contacts and he's got his 
admission into all the night spots and into the best restaurants. And one day he comes to his locker before a game and he notices that his uniform is not there, his equipment is neatly packed over in the side and there's a little note, come to the office and he's given a slip saying he's been traded to another team. And he was on a team that was leading the league and was about to win the pennant and he thought he had a right to stay there and enjoy the fruits and they've decided they don't want him anymore. Maybe his contract is too expensive. Maybe he's got a bad attitude. Maybe somebody in the, in the uh, clubhouse doesn't like him. Who knows what happened, but he's been traded. He now belongs to another team. Now, the labor, ha uh, the unions have worked to eliminate that, but there's still some residuals of that and basically it meant, especially in the old days, tough luck. You, you're now owned by another owner. You are the property of a new team. You go, you report, you play, or you don't get paid. You do not choose where you play. You do not choose when you play. You, you're, you're the right to you, as they say, have been traded to another team. You were a Yankee, now you're an Indian. You don't have any say in that. That's sort of the way they use it. And they use the terminology, his rights have been sold or traded to another team. Or they purchased the rights from another team. Well, that is a poor analogy to, to, to describe what we are. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. Someone has purchased the rights to us with his blood. We are not our own. We are bought with a price, the precious blood of the Son of God. And the mark of that, or the stamp of that, the permanent stamp of that upon us is the Holy Spirit. The concept of the seal one of its ideas is that God has placed a permanent stamp of his ownership upon us. We're his. He would not have given his spirit to us on any other basis or with any other end in mind. We belong to him. Listen, brethren, away with all this idea that brags about having the spirit but speaks as though I am not under any authority of Christ or acts as though the Word of God is not the ultimate authority for my life because I myself can decide what's right for me because I have the Spirit talking to me regularly. What they miss is that the Spirit has been talking to them regularly and they've ignored His voice in the Scriptures and replaced it with another voice that they've chosen to call the Spirit which has no similarity in truth to the, to the spirit of truth in the scriptures. So in the first place, the seal in its essence is the permanent stamp of God's ownership of us. But in the second place, it also is the positive impress of God's character within us. The positive impress of God's character within us. The idea of authenticity goes with the concept of the seal. Again, turn back in the Old Testament to the book of Esther, chapter 3, Esther 3, verse 12. You know what happened? The helpers of the king and their shrewdness convinced him that they, he ought to get everybody in the kingdom to bow uh, to his homage or to do homage to him and Mordecai the Jew decided no sir I have one king 
I'm not going to do homage to anybody but my God. And these guys went and told the king and secured a decree from the king to kill these Jews who weren't honoring the king above God. Well, in verse 12 of Esther chapter 3, Then were the king's scribes, those that do the writing, called in the first month on the thirteenth day thereof, and there was written according to all that Haman commanded unto the king's satraps, and to the governors that were over every province, and to the princes of every people, to every province according to the writing thereof, to every people after their language. Now, first of all, remember, this that's being written to people all over the civilized world, in all kinds of languages it's being sent and written, they're supposed to kill the Jews in their town. Wherever you live, get rid of the Jews. Now, if you got a letter like that, from supposedly from your government, would you... And now, if you can put yourself back in those days, I mean, you, you've got to do what the king says, but you'd certainly want to make sure it was the king that's saying this. This is not like it, this king. I'm not accustomed... He's never done this. How do... I know this is from him. We'll read on, and it says, In the name of King Ahasuerus, was it written, and it was sealed with the king's ring. It's authentic. It's a genuine product. The king sent this letter. It is. If you don't do what he says, you're going to get killed too. In other words, this really does come from the king. How do we know? It has the impress of the king's name, his sign, his character upon it. Authentic Authenticity is carried with this concept of the seal. Well, what does that mean to us? Well, it means that God's own name, our Father's name, is written upon our heads. God has written His own name upon us. As the hymn said, on the palms of His hands. Well, that's a way of saying he cannot look at his own hands without seeing us imprinted, embedded within them. He cannot erase them. They cannot be erased. We are imprinted on him. But the scriptural idea of a seal is more than that. Not just that our names are on him, but that his name is imprinted upon us. The seal is the very character of God himself. And as you know, a man's name is that by which he's known. What he really is expressed in terminology, in words, and shown in his reputation by his actions. God has impressed upon his people himself, his name, his character, so as to say, these are authentically mine. These are the children of God. He marks them out as such. And how does he do so? By putting his spirit upon them. God gives them his spirit. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 24. And you'll see the biblical doctrine simply put here of the essence of this concept. God has written upon you his own character. In the seal of the Spirit. Ephesians 4, verse 24. He is appealing to them to be renewed in the spirit of their mind. And he says in verse 24, Put on the new man. 
Now this is the ongoing duty of every believer to be about the business in this language of cultivating the positive virtues of the faith. Contrasted on the, with, with the concept of mortifying the sins from the old life constantly, you are also to be putting on the new man, putting off the old, putting on the new. A continual process of cultivating the graces of the Spirit who dwells in you. However, note the foundation on which this constant work of cultivation is built. That after God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. You are about the perpetual business of mortifying sin and cultivating righteousness and holiness because God has already, according to his own character, created you in such holiness. As God has stamped his own character into you and upon you, you bear not only the name Christian, not only the appellation of a child of God, but God's nature and character itself. Not his nature as God, but his nature as righteous and holy. You possess that of God. You've been born of God, brethren. We're talking about imagery that is no less than, than procreation. In fact, the term is used. Creation. God has created us, but he's created us through birth, through conception, through the seed of the word of God. We were begotten again, the, the incorruptible seed. And so God has done a thing in the giving of his spirit to his people that has sealed them up forever with a positive arrangement of his own character upon them. God's name is written on them. His person is written on them, if we may say it. His spirit has sealed them. Now, you, you might want to ask, well, exactly, which is, is it when I'm justified or when I'm adopted or when I'm sealed that I get the character of God or when I'm regenerated? These are all terms that have to be studied in theological and logical order but cannot easily be divided up that, that neatly as this happens first and that happens then and this happens later. All, uh, lots of things are being done in one thing, in one event, in one work, but these things cannot be described with one statement. And so we look at one aspect of it and we find ourselves swimming in an ocean of wonder. And then we look aside and there's another whole ocean out here with different kinds of sea mammals and different kinds of animals separated by a continent. And we go dive into that one and it has its own nature and its blessing. But it's all part of the same world. All part of the same creation. All there together. And yet the distinctives and the variety are almost endless to our minds. And that's what we're doing when we're reading these things in the Scriptures. But one of the aspects of the sealing of the Spirit is that God has written his name on the heads of his people. Would you like to see another passage of Scripture regarding... Well, I won't turn it. I think it'll take too much time. But you remember in the Revelation, that passage of the 144,000. What is it that keeps that 144,000 from falling to the beast and getting the mark of the beast upon their foreheads, upon their hands. They've been sealed in their foreheads. 
Now, those that have wrenched the Scriptures and radically torn them away from what they meant and have created a whole new theology of eschatology out of that passage, they have robbed us of the benefit of that passage to us. That is not a passage referring to a literal 144,000 individual Jews in Palestine during a seven-year period of trouble later in the history of the world. That's a passage that sums up all the people of God in all the ages who have been sealed by God so the devil can't get to them. It's a blessed thing, and the term seal is used there. That's what's happened. God's character has been impressed upon us. But in the third place, the essence of the seal not only is a permanent stamp of God's ownership of us and a positive impress of God's character within us, but also it's a perpetual or if you've ever heard the term, perdurable bond of God's preservation of us. A perpetual bond of God's preservation of us. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30, which we read earlier, says, In whom you were sealed until the day of redemption. Until the day of redemption. You see the perpetual, the permanence of this thing? This is a pledge of God by putting His Spirit upon His children that they shall remain His and will be intact at the last day. May we, may we say it this way. God has obligated Himself in the putting of His Spirit within us to bestow upon His people the full remainder of all the blessings purchased for them by his son's blood. God has obligated himself to see to it that the full attainment and reality of experience of all the blessings for which his son shed his blood for us will be ours. It is not, as a radio preacher I heard on the way to church this morning suggested, that God is hoping or wanting to save you. It is that God is saving his people to the uttermost, will not fail to do so, and at the last day, all those who came to God through Christ, he will raise up together with him. Isn't that what the Lord said? All those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. But I will raise him up at the last day. And that is not essentially a statement there that says, if you come, I won't turn you away. The implication of that statement is more that once you've come, you'll never, have, you'll never be thrown away later. That's a statement of preservation, not just a statement of invitation. It is true that if you come on his terms, he'll receive you and not turn you away. But he's saying there that God is, the Father has given me such authority that those who once come to me, I will never cast them away. I will raise them up at the last day. Once they're mine, they're mine. And God has put his spirit upon them to guarantee it. As the hymn says, nothing can sever us from his love. As Romans chapter 8, what can separate us from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ our Lord? Nothing can take us from his hand. God has obligated himself to bestow upon his people the full remainder of all the blessings purchased by the blood of his Son. 
Now you look at verse chapter 1 again of Ephesians and you look at the next verse after verse 13. And you remember in 2 Corinthians 1, they're also juxtaposed right next to each other, this concept of the sealing and the earnest. Now they're different words and they denote different word pictures and yet they're all wrapped up in the same thing. God has sealed us with his spirit in verse 14 of Ephesians 1, which is an earnest of our inheritance. He has sealed us with his spirit and that spirit seal is an earnest. And what does the word earnest mean? And without going into the detail, we'll just simply say that it means a down payment. It was a trader term in Phoenicia in which they... Uh, utilize this concept and probably the word even came into the Hebrew through the Phoenicians and it, it, it's a word that simply is a, a trading term that when you say Let's, when I'd like to buy another 1500 bales of that cotton you're bringing from Egypt uh, you got some more where that came from yeah we've got it in the factory down there in Cyprus and how many do you want and he orders it and they say oh, now we, we need a little earnest money here now, we're not going to take our ships all the way to Cyprus load them up with 1500 bales of cotton bring them back here and have you say well you got a better deal in the meantime so some down payment money to show good faith you really mean this this is not just off the top of your head you know we have a generation who has a character that's so irresponsible that we don't want to be bound to our word and some of us when we want to buy a house we're offended that they want a thousand bucks there just to just kind of tie the deal. We say, wait a minute, wait a minute. what if I change my mind, I lose my thousand dollars? They say, that's the point. It's, it's, it's our, we're trying to sell a house here, we're not trying to placate your moods. And so they got those who know wiser in the use of unrighteous mammon than the children of the kingdom. They know you don't trust people with say, oh no, I never changed my mind. You can depend on me, I just don't have the money right now. Well, if you don't have a thousand, how are you going to get ninety-five thousand? Well, the bank will give it. Well, go get the bank to give you the thousand. Well, I can't, I, but I've got an appointment. Of, sorry, that's, the, that's their view. Why? Because they've been burned and burned and burned by good-meaning, well-meaning promises. But you see, here's God who has put earnest money down, if we may put it that way. Earnest. I think the word in the Hebrew is Arabon. God has not only promised to preserve us, but he has put up something in pledge, not just in pledge, but in earnest money that is a part of what he's going to give us later. And for him to go back on his word, he loses the earnest money. And what is the earnest? It's the Spirit of God. I mean, you see the significance. God has given us this. Spirit, and that is an earning. God has given it as payment, which is a pledge of what we shall get in its fullness later, and there's no chance at all that those who've received the down payment won't get the full benefit in the end. That's the point. The seal is the guarantee from God that what he has begun he will finish. You will arrive at the gates of glory and have all that you, you love to have that you only have a foretaste of now. The seal of the Spirit. Perpetual bond of God's preservation of us till the day of redemption. Now for you who may be new to the Bible, maybe a new convert, maybe you don't know these things, 
The day of redemption in this text refers not to the original redemption of Christ on the cross when he redeemed us from the curse of the law, redeemed us from the bondage of sin, and purchased us from our slavery. But the day of redemption here is the use in the New Testament which you will find in Romans 8. The day when the bodies of the saved will be joined to their spirits in glory, resurrected with glorious new bodies. It's the day of the redemption of the purchased possession, our bodies, which now don't bear the marks of the saving work of Christ. We are still subject to corruption. We groan together within ourselves desiring and longing for the manifestation of the sons of God in their full glory. But that day hasn't come yet. When it does, God's going to be redeeming what he's purchased. Now here's a picture. I have not been able to find it this week in all of my reading. But years ago I read it. And I, it makes sense to me. When the Romans used to go into Lebanon, which had those beautiful cedars, those great woods, the Romans would decide they were going to take some wood out of, out of Lebanon. They would send their timber experts ahead. And they would go through the forests of Lebanon and they would mark out the trees that were suitable for the, for the emperor's purposes and seal them with the emperor's seal. And what that meant was when the tree cutters came, when the lumberjacks came on the boats to cut them down, load them on the boats and take them to Rome, they go through the forest and wherever they see a tree with a seal on it, that's the one going to Rome. And anybody that would come after they cut them down and find they left one with a seal on it, He's got the emperor to deal with. In other words, this thing is going to go to Rome. And so when you come through the woods, you make sure and double check three, four, and five times. You better not miss one that the emperor has stamped with his seal by his delegate. So later on, the ships come. They go through the forest. They see a seal on a tree. This one goes to the emperor. And they come and they cut it down and they drag that thing to the boat and they deliver it to the emperor. Maybe they left the seal on it. So when it got there, everybody knew this was one marked out. Once that seal goes on it, it's got to be in Rome. You see the, you see the picture? That's the same thing here. God has put his seal on you. And it's not just 10% of the payment, it's his spirit himself. You shall be in glory, and none will miss you. And we could take that imagery much further, but I believe for the sake of time we'll, we'll not try. That's the essence of the seal. Permanent stamp of God's ownership of us, the positive impress of God's character within us, and the perpetual bond of God's preservation of us. But in the third place, note with me the recipient of the seal. Who are they? Well, there's two ways to look at it. First of all, this seal is universal. And by that I mean every believer in Christ is sealed with the Spirit. All who are in Christ. All who believe upon Christ are sealed. It's a universal thing for every true Christian. Now look back at Ephesians 1 again to see the text. Verse 13, In whom you also, having heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, having also believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The language is clear that faith comes before the seal. The seal is given to faith. 
The seal is the gift to faith. From faith to faith. God gives the Spirit to those who believe. That's what we established in our first message on this from Acts 2, 38. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent, be baptized for the remission of your sins, and what will happen? You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is through faith in Christ and upon faith in Christ that the Spirit is given in this sense. It is not the same, as we said before, as regeneration or the other works of the Spirit that bring you to faith. This is a separate thing. The gift of the Spirit is that which God gives to a believer in Christ. The work of the Spirit in secret is what is necessary to make you a believer in Christ. But having done that work of changing the heart, planting the principle of life within us, God then, through faith in Christ, on the ground of that faith, or because of that faith, gives the Spirit. Not so you can say meritoriously, I believe, therefore. But it's the part of the reward or the gift or the pledge or the seal of faith. I don't know how to explain it better than that. If you think that means that it's work, no, no. Because your faith was a gift. And your exercise of faith and repentance, they were graces, evangelical graces given by God in his wisdom and power. And yet, when a person believes on Christ, God does something there. If we can even put it in chronological terms, because Ephesus, Ephesians does. After that, you believed you were sealed. Now, this is where uh, some of the brethren... Earth. They saw this after that and they said, ah, there's a second work of grace. And then they noted that a lot of people didn't act like they were happy in the Lord, so they figured they had not yet had this after you were believed experience. And so they separated brethren. Some have it, some don't. You need to pray for it. You need to get it. I hope you have it. Now, those that are talking about this second work of grace in the ceiling are not normally charismatics or tongue speakers. Not normally. Though the tongue speakers are now joining with them and mixing the issue up quite a bit, which always happens. But they didn't intend it to get that far. They simply thought they saw in the text a chronological sequence that may or may not be separated by years. That is not the sense of the text. It, the sense is not that after you believe, some of you were sealed and some of you will be later and some of you hope you... No, everybody that believes. There's no question in this text about the universality of this experience. After you believed, you were sealed. If you believe, you were sealed. The Spirit is given to all who believe. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will receive the gift of the Spirit. That's the promise. That's the promise. Who has ever thought that in, to anyone who comes and embraces Christ as his only hope and pounces, uh, lays himself humbly at the feet of Jesus and says, Lord, I, I look to you, I can't save myself, have mercy on me, and calls on the name of the Lord, that God would say, not yet will you get the Spirit. I'm going to wait and see how sincere and dedicated. No, no, the promise is to faith in Christ. And when you come to Christ, you get the Spirit. And all that goes with the getting of the Spirit. There are no second class Christians in this sense. There are no two groups of believers. Some who've had the seal and some who don't. After you believed, you were sealed. Every time. You see the point. So it's a universal thing. But also it's a unique thing. Just as all who believe upon Christ have the Spirit, 
nobody else does. Only those who believe in Christ have the Spirit. It's after you believe. You don't get the Spirit and perform feats of miracles because the Spirit of God dwells in you and then later on come to believe in Jesus. You can't have it that way. If you'll go back sometime, maybe this afternoon, and again meditate on this passage in Ephesians 1, and look at how many times the phrase, in whom, is used. In whom. Not one thing that is described in this chapter ever happens outside of Christ himself. Not one thing that's ever given to a believer is given to him in the name and the power of anything other than Christ and his blood and his finished work. Nothing. It's all in Christ. Chosen in him. Redeemed in him by his blood. In whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of our sins. In whom after you believed, you were sealed. You You believed in him and you were sealed in him. The Spirit is Christ in us. Sealed with the Spirit. Another comforter to supply to you that which I could not supply because I in my glorified body will be in heaven. He will come and do what I've been doing here in a more limited fashion than He will be doing. A greater work will you do with Him because I'm not going to have the carnal limitations of the flesh. That's what I think this text is. Greater works than these shall you do because I go to the Father. And in the going to the Father, that makes way for the Spirit to be brought. Now, I'm well aware that we could take any number of these statements and go to town with them for years and study them and deal with them. I'm simply trying to put in perspective who it is that are sealed. Who are the recipients? You may see it in the fact that it is persons that are sealed and not promises. Brethren, this is not a statement that says God has made promises and he sealed those promises. No, no. God has made promises and he sealed his people. You see, we may think that doesn't matter, but it matters because some are, are relegating this concept of a seal as simply a public statement of God. It says, trust me, I've made my mind up, I've given my word. There's more than that here. It's not just that God's putting the seal of his word on his promises and sealing promises. It is that God is sealing persons by his spirit. It's a personal intimate giving of the third person of the Godhead to dwell with upon and in the believer forever. Nothing could be more blessed and glorious than that except when we see him face to face. Now I want, I want us to grasp it and understand it and I want to grasp it and understand it. So it's persons sealed, not promises. But look at the time. It is at the very outset of our conversion. What we're saying is this. There is no benefit that the saints can have that have not already been provided in the giving of the Spirit. All spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus, he's already blessed us with them. That's what the text says. We have been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. It's one of the reasons that we fight so hard for that which is inside the womb of a mother, which they are now talking about in terms of incipient life. 
the, the, the opponents of this issue are, are learning fast. And then they, they know they have no case. And they're beginning to change their language to soften it without changing their position. And they're calling it incipient life. Well, brethren, it's either alive or it isn't. I can never imagine an incipient life. You, you, you can never say it's incipient life till it's living. You have no evidence it's going to be living till it's living. Well, we have evidence we've watched in the past. Well, they don't listen to that. It's why we fight for that, because the, the analogies of Scripture start with carnal things and make analogies in spiritual things. And if there's life, though yet unformed, the whole character and principle of this human being is written on him in the womb. He knew me before my parts were formed. There was a me in the mind of God. And he loved me. What did he love? Did he love the embryo? Yes. Did he love the further development of that? Yes. Did he love the child, the baby? Yes. Did he love the adult? Yes. But the principle and all the privilege and benefits of genetic truths and facts and data were written there from the beginning. And that's what we're saying in the gift of the Spirit. All the blessings and all the benefits and all the works of grace are ours when the Spirit is ours. The development of graces, the learning of them, the full appreciation of them, the entering in and the growing in them is a process. Not to be finished till we reach heaven. But the fact of the privileges and benefits are ours at the outset once we come to Christ. It's critical to see that. The seal is not a progressive thing. Our concept, appreciation for, its experience of the privileges and benefits that that seal ensures may be progressive things. Sanctification and growing in grace and in the knowledge of Christ is in the, in the next chapter of Ephesians, the Apostles' Prayer in chapter 3. I bow my knees, in verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that he would grant you and here's the God who's already given us all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. The apostle is praying that that God who's given us all that we need in pertaining to life and godliness is praying that he would grant us according to the riches of his glory that we be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Well, I thought he already did. Yes, he does. But he's asking for a strengthening of our felt experience and knowledge of that to indwelling. That there may be a growth in our faith and apprehension of and perception of what has been put upon us and in us. To the end that you being rooted and grounded in love may be strong to apprehend. You see his concern? You have it, but you need to grow in your apprehension of what you have. It's not that we need to be sealed. That's the none. If, if we've come to Christ. It's that we need to cultivate that which God has given and planted within us and develop and grow it and stir it up and learn of it and grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And brethren, the seal was a blessed gift to faith. But the growth is hard work. I'll address you who are cold and have told me if you're having trouble reading your Bible and praying just for weeks on time. Let me tell you, You've got to fight through it, dear brother. 
you've got to fight through it. You're not going to get out of it lying in bed hoping someday you'll wake up feeling different from the way you felt the last six weeks. Sorry. The longer you do that, the more vegetated you'll be. You'll never get out of that ordinarily. And if you do, it won't last long without working and fighting. Fight through it and pray when you don't want to pray. And keep praying when after ten minutes you didn't feel like you got through. Pray! Of all times you need to pray is when you can't pray. You need God to help you because you can't even do the first thing a Christian does. Of all times, well, I might as well not talk to God about this. Unless God helps, I can't do anything. So I'm not talking to God. What kind of circular logic is that? Why go to God? I need help from God. That's what you're saying. I can't do anything. Why talk to God about it? Brethren, that's the only place to go. So we're not saying that this seal is a developing thing. No, that's it. The Holy Spirit is given. But the implications, the apprehension of that is a lifelong process of growth. But finally, application. And we've made some along the way, but I think I must make these very pointed. First of all, there ought to be much comfort, as I'm sure there already has been, in the hearing of the preaching. Much assurance and much praise that God has given us His Spirit. And the implications of being possessed and owned by God, and He's pledged that with His Spirit. And having been guaranteed a preservation for eternity, that ought to bring praise from us. Brethren, on what grounds? Because today you feel it? No. The seal of the Spirit is not primarily subjective, it is primarily objective. The one who's most aware of the feeling is God, not the believer. That's what I believe I've concluded. It's not so much your God sealed you and you see the seal and you know it and that gives you comfort. There are other things that give comfort to the Christian. Other aspects of the work of the Spirit. The seal is what God has done. You didn't see it when you believed. You didn't believe and then when they said, oh, I've been sealed. That's not what happened to most of you. Your growth and knowledge and assurance has not come through awareness of the seal cognitively, but through the learning of the promises of the Scriptures as you by faith apprehended and grew in what God has done. The emphasis here is not that, that you get a comfort because you feel sealed, or look sealed, or saw it when it happened. You might want to ask, what's the evidence? The Bible says I was sealed. How do I know? Don't look for some sort of thing called a seal on you to find out whether you're a Christian. The Christian is not commanded to get sealed. The Christian is commanded, the, the sinner is commanded to believe upon Christ. The duty is not to wait till you get the Spirit. The duty is to come to Christ and repent of your sin and believe on Him. God gives the Spirit to all who come that way and to none other. But it ought to make you comfortable. Not lazy, not lethargic, but give much comfort, joy, and assurance and praise. The certification of future glory is on you. That ought to make you bellow out a bit. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not this doctrine of election. It's kind of weird. You don't get that from Ephesians 1. 
This is not a guy that says, now let's enter into a debate on the very difficult and heady doctrine of unconditional election. That's not what Paul's doing. Properly received and understood, election doesn't produce a dialogue. It produces worship and praise and hum- humility and brokenness and adoration and wonderment. Blessed be God! That ought to be the mark of those who see what God's done in the Spirit. Second, along with all that, there ought to be fear and awe resting regularly and continually upon us because it is God that is in us. It ought to keep our worship sober, our preparation for worship diligent, the following up on worship careful. We ought to be careful how we walk in all holy conversation because it is God that is at work in us. You see what the scriptures say in Philippians 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Why fear and trembling? Because it is God that is at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's the root of this fear. Remember Simon Peter when the waves were blowing him away and he was about to give it all up and Jesus spoke the word and the waves stopped and he said, Depart from me, Lord, I'm an unclean man. How did he draw the conclusion from the power of calming the waves to his ethical uncleanness? Nobody said, You're an old, dirty, rotten sinner, Peter. What happened? Something about the grace and the power of Christ displayed in the deliverance of them made the man see there's something about this man that I have no belonging, I, I don't fit with him. We're in contrast. I don't know what this is here. In the, in the early days of the time, brethren, we ought to still possess something of that in the presence of God. Just because you know God better, don't throw aside your holy fear that you felt at one stage. Cultivate that. This is God within us. And it's easy when a church is growing in unity and learning to enjoy each other. And there are times for just frolicking good times. And we've had some recently that we just wouldn't trade for anything. But I tell you, you've got to be cautious even then that you don't begin to look more forward to those times than to these times of spiritual refreshment and filling in the presence of God in worship. In the third place, this seal marks a radical distinction between saints and sinners. Radical. Nothing could so divide us up from the world than the fact that we have the Spirit and the world doesn't. God has sealed us with His Spirit, not the world. What did the Lord say? In John chapter 14, the world cannot receive Him. Why can't the world receive Him? They don't believe in His Son. There's a separation that's been made by Christ. And the result is, I've chosen you out of the world, you're not of the world, therefore the world hates you. What is it that makes the world hate you? It is not your insistence on anti-abortion politics. The world hates you for these reasons, biblically. Because you have the evidence and marks of the life and the presence of the Spirit of the living God upon you. Now, let mark this. They hate you because in sealing you with the Spirit, God has chosen you out of the world. You are not of the world anymore. You've been yanked out of that company. There is a radical separation that's taking place. And that mark is at the point of the Holy Spirit coming.
how do I know? Why the world doesn't know anything about this? What do you mean they hate me because I have the Spirit? Let me tell you how they how they know. You remember what we quoted in Second Timothy two nineteen? The Lord knows those that are His to seal. You know what it says next? And let him that names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. You know what happens to those whom the Lord knows who are His? They depart from iniquity. And you know what happens to their former friends? They get incensed. They see it. You are constant, conscience-probing reminded of them of their own rebellion against God. They would never admit it if you talk to them. They'll profess they don't even believe there is such a thing as the Ten Commandments, but they see you constantly. They can smell what you are. God is marking you out. God is setting you apart. And as you walk in consistent holy living with principles and you act on principle, not on money, not on how much, not on how comfortable, but on principle, resolutely not going to conform, they're going to hate you. They've done it every time men and women have stood on principle. They're going to hate you. There's been an ethical transformation that is proof of the sealing of the Spirit. Well, let me sum it all up. I'm going to skip one application and sum up with this statement. Remember, the emphasis in the sealing of the Spirit is God's view, not ours. The emphasis here is that when God looks at you, God sees his stamp, his impress, his seal. And God is bound to guard you and to develop you and to present you faultless before his glory. And there's no way he'll fail to do so because you bear the seal of his own right hand in your hearts. The objective work whereby God sets apart and marks out for himself those whom he's chosen. That's the seal of the Spirit. This work of sealing is a guarantee and a certitude of the future fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. It's not so much a guarantee to us as it is simply a guarantee, period. You understand what I mean by that? It's not so much that God seals and says, Now, see, you know you're sealed and you're... It's that God has sealed you and that guarantees you're going to make it to heaven even if you're not sure. If you're sealed, you're going to make it. Now, how do you know you're sealed? You believe in Christ and Christ alone. Do you trust in Him and Him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, for the saving of your old wretched soul? And is there some evidence that there's been a real change in the way you perceive the world and God and your fellow man and yourself. Humble. You know you're not worth anything in yourself, but Christ is all in all. You want to do nothing but serve and please Him, though you recognize that you can hardly do the best first thing for Him in your weakness and in your sin. And you feel a sense of love for God and gratitude to God and the desire to do what's right, and you can't get away from that. Those are marks of a change in your heart marks of the possession of the Holy Spirit marks that you believe upon Christ and you're saved if you don't have those then the charge of the gospel to you is today to repent and turn from your sin and embrace Christ and run to him for mercy before it's too late may God give us grace to obey the gospel
Let us pray. Our Father, you have, we believe, heard our prayer and drawn near to us in considering these blessed matters. And only ask that you would forgive the shortcomings of our minds and our preaching in these things, for we've dealt with such holy things, with unholy hands. But our Father, we also pray that you would take up the slack which we have left and that you would bind upon the soul of your children the, 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 the joy and the confidence and the blessedness that is ours by virtue of your Spirit put upon us and put within us. And that any who this morning in our midst have never come to Jesus and don't know your hand of marking and stamping and impressing and sealing who are not conformed to your character and you're headed for the wrath to come, that you would open the heart and the mind and grant deliverance from sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord, receive our thanks for the multitude of blessing that is ours through your Son. And help us grow in these things. Keep us from, from Satan. We trust your word that says, The evil one cannot touch us, because we have an anointing of the Holy One. O Lord, thank you. Help us live in the light of what we've preached and what we now know. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.